Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God be praised. It's, uh, it's a joy to be here. I've been trying to get here since last year. And um, I was um, recovering from a stroke. The Lord delivered me. Pastor Dees was gracious, would not give up on me, and asked me to come again. I am a firm believer that God's delays are not God's denials. I'm here when I'm supposed to be here. And I've come to meet you because we're going to be spending the eternity forever, so it's about time for us to get to know each other. <laughs> I sincerely mean that. Very grateful to be here. Pastor Dees, a prolific pontificator of the proclamation of the gospel. I've known him, known his parents. Now I know his sheep. Thank you for letting me be here. It's a joy to represent Jesus in your midst. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Verses 16 through 34. Acts chapter 17, verses 6 through 34. All right. I'm being led by the Spirit and also by that clock up there. I'm seeing. <laughs> Hear these words from the Word as I attempt by the Holy Spirit to talk about rooted but not restricted. Rooted but not restricted. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant chaff trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself guides everyone life and gives everyone life and breath in all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries 
of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear you hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. If the church is to remain relevant, it must be rooted in the word without being restricted by the walls in which it worships. If the church is to remain relevant, it must be rooted in the word without being restricted by the walls in which it worships. If this sounds biblically accurate and theologically responsible, Repeat it after me. If it doesn't forever hold your peace, if it sounds right, repeat it after me. If the church, now in the African-American worship experience, that's called <laughs> call and response. If the church, church. is to remain relevant, remain relevant, it must be rooted in the word without being restricted by the walls in which it worships. We must believe. Therefore, we must know what we believe. Jesus says in John 5, 39, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. For these are they, scriptures, that testify of me. We must know what we believe. We must also know why we believe what we believe. And Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 3, 15, always be ready to give a reason an apologia, a hope, a defense for the hope that lies in us. We must know what we believe. We must know why we believe what we believe. But that is not enough. We must know who we believe. Not just what we believe and why we believe it, but who we believe. Because... Belief is what you hold. Conviction is what holds you. Because you never know what you really believe until it's time to believe it. Until your experience catches up with your exegesis or your interpretation. In other words, I hear Paul say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12. He says, I know whom I believe. Not just what 
I believe and why I believe it. But I know whom I believe. And I know that he is able, Christ, to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. There will come a time, perhaps, in your life when knowing what you believe and why you believe it may not be enough. And the bottom of life will fall out. And you feel like saying, stop the world. I want to get off. And you can't even find a scripture to quote. When you get that call like we got, my wife and I, on October the 30th, 2010, after having a tremendous day in ministry, God was moving in a great day, a great way. It was a time of celebration. But at midnight, a call came. Tony, our baby son, had been working in his restaurant, and there was a robbery. No money was taken. He was shot and killed on the scene, and we got the call. I knew what I believed. I knew why I believed what I believed. But I needed to know whom I believe. I needed to know Christ because my experience had to match my exegesis. It's one thing to sing a song in the spring of life. It's another thing to sing it when the wonder has come and it's frozen. And then you have to ask yourself, do I really believe what I've been saying about and preaching about? All of these years. If the church is to remain relevant, it must be rooted in the word without being restricted by the walls in which it worships. Lurking in the backwoods of everybody's mind are two questions. Because you know whom you believe. These two questions are foundational for you. And you ought to be able to say this. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from the sunshine, for its clouds may turn to gray. I don't worry about the future, for I know what Jesus said. And today he walks beside me, for he knows what lies ahead. Many things about tomorrow. I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow. I don't know what. I don't know why. I don't know where. I don't know when. But I know who. And as long as you know the who... Even though you don't have the answer to the why, I know who holds tomorrow. And I know he holds my hand. The first question that looks in the backwoods of everybody's mind is a theological question, the God question. Does God exist? And people wonder about that, even Christians. Because great theologians of church history have compiled proofs, tenets, defenses for the existence of God. People like St. Thomas Aquinas and others, so many others. Based upon uh, many things, based upon the, the, the creation. That creation is God's work that's done in a supra, not logical, but supra-logical way that didn't make sense, logically speaking. How do you figure this out? 
That the first creative fiat command that God gave was that God said, let there be lights. And light came running at 186,000 miles a second. First day. Fourth day, God said, let there be the sun. How do you have light on the first day, the sun on the fourth day? It makes no sense. What makes sense is God said, let there be the sun on the first day, and on the fourth day, let there be light. No, not God. Because light doesn't come from the sun. Light comes from God. And we're told in Revelation 22 and 5, in the eschaton, in the great beyond, when time has fallen, exhausted at the feet of eternity, time will be no more, that there will be light in the city, but there'd be no sun. Because light comes from the sun, from the, sun the S-O-N. Oh, that creation is a divine design. It is not done haphazardly. It's not a process or it's not an act that is accidental or coincidental or even for that matter, incidental. It's done through providence. It's providential so that God meticulously and carefully and coordinatedly takes and puts it together by speaking and it appears. And then creation is God as Father through the Spirit moving. It's a dynamic, not a static, but a dynamic process. For the Bible says in the opening verses that the Spirit of God moved, hovered upon the face of the water, separating water from land. The Spirit is moving. God the Father is moving. And then intertrinitarian presence is when God begins to participate in a divine soliloquy and asks himself the question in verse 26 and says that God made humans in his own image and after his likeness. Mm. And therefore, God has a Trinitarian council. Jesus is present because we are told in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, all things are held together mm. by the Son. In him, all things hold together. So God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit he is active even in the process of creation. And then the, the, the idea of the ground of being. Christ is there as the ground of being. We hear in John 1 and 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, which just really means that if you see it, he did it. And then finally, in terms of creation, this whole matter of cause and effect, that if there is a result, there's a cause, and God is a cause. And as I said to you in Colossians 1.17, that he holds it all together. God has done it. Now, I appreciate what these thinkers have done to give us tenets and to make an argument for the creation tenable, that is, defensible. But God cannot be proved. God must be experienced. A God that has to be proved is no God. 
God must be experienced. The Bible just opens up with an assumption. In the beginning, God. That's it. Where did it come from? God. He was before the before and it will be after the after. And uh, he is so quick that uh, God precedes time. He's not in time, but time is in him. Uh, he can't be explained. You got to experience him. Thank you, Henry Blackaby. You got to experience God. John 9, there's a blind man who's never seen the lily in his purple purity, nor the rose in a in his crimson splendor. Never seen anything. Never seen the stars. Never seen his parents. And Jesus stops and by the side of the road and sets up a pharmaceutical practice. Spits in the dirt and takes that mud. See, we would have been offended by that. Don't spit on me. <laughs> and tells the man to go to Siloam. Siloam means sent. So he sends him to sent. And he went and he came back seeing the church bosses who are very legalistic and very logical and need an explanation for everything. How did you see? We've seen you as a little boy. We knew that you went to um, the school of the blind. You read by Braille and so how are you seeing now? man by the name of Jesus spit on the ground and applied it to my eyes and told me to go down to the pool of Siloam. I did that, and that's how I see. Well, they didn't like Jesus. He was a question to them. And they said to the man, well, he's a sinner. The blind man says, and he didn't go to Beast and Divinity School, so he didn't have theological education. He didn't know. He didn't go to Christ's covenant. He didn't have theological education. He said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Listen to that. I mean, that's terrible Christology. He might be a sinner. He might not be. Mm, I can't prove it. Mm. But this one thing I know, John 9, 25. I used to be blind, but now I see. I'll let you deal with the logistics of it. I'll deal with the experience, the existential moment. I used to be blind, but now I see. And I know I see because I'm looking at your color coordination, and your clothes don't match. <laughs> they know what to handle there. Some things you've, you've got to be able to experience and not prove so that your experience give, gives evidence of the reality of what God has done for you. Dr. Carl F.H. Henry, a great uh, theologian, when he was interviewed by Dr. Greg Thornberry of the Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, just a few months before he died uh, in 2004, he asked him this question. Dr. Henry, what is the most profound question you've ever put to your students after teaching uh, many, many decades? Dr. Henry didn't hesitate. He didn't deal with the conundrums of the JEPD theory of the Old Testament. He didn't deal with the intricacies of theological postulations. He got right to it. Have you met the resurrected Lord? That's the question. Have you met him? Not have you heard about him. Not have you studied about him. But have you met? Has that been an encounter between you and Jesus? Because that's really all that counts. That's why Paul spends one whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, to talk about the absolute essential 
reality and the absolute indispensability of the resurrection. If Jesus be not risen from the dead, then all that we are doing here is in vain. God cannot really be proven. God must be experienced. Helen Keller, who could not see and who could not hear, said that the most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt within the heart. Felt within the heart. There are some things I may not know. There are some places I may not go. But this one thing I'm sure, that God is real for I can feel him in my soul. Yes, God is real. Real in my soul. Yes, God is real for he has washed and made me whole. His love for me is like pure gold. Yes, God is real for I can feel him in my soul. In the backwoods of everybody's mind, there is this theological question. Does God exist? But also in the backwoods of everybody's mind is the anthropological question, the human question. And that is, what is the meaning of life? I just heard just a day ago another suicide by a teenager. I hear it very often. What's the meaning of life? Is it just to get an education? If it's, is it just to lift up a great career? Is it, is it just to have a lot of money? Is it just to... God has made a God-sized hole in every one of us. And nothing can fill that hole except God. Try it. Good things never give you satisfaction. Give you a momentary release of enjoyment and pleasure. But then you need another moment and another moment and another moment and another moment. But when you have an experience with Jesus, you don't need coke because you have Christ. You don't need grass because you have grace. You don't need marijuana because you have Mary's Jesus. And you have a high in which you don't have a hangover because he takes you there and keeps you there and you're satisfied with him. There's an anthropological question. What is the meaning of life? Now, I know you're wondering when you're going to get to the text. That's good. I'm in the suburbs of the text. I'm coming to the text. I'm in the suburbs. I'm in Buckhead. I'm on my way downtown Atlanta. <laughs> just, just, just ride with me a little while. Just a little while. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Does, is that right? 13 minutes and 11 seconds I have left? Okay. <laughs> let's, let's move on. Here's the text. Here's the text. Sorry, Dietrich. I must say this. I must say this. Again. If the church is going to be relevant, it has to be rooted in the word without being stricted by the walls of which we worship. When I was a little boy, my parents would take us to Everton, Georgia, where my, mother, uh, my mother's mother lived, very rural, et cetera. I was always amazed because my grandmother had a porch. And on that porch, we'd sit. I, everyone that passed down the road, she knew, waving at them. Hey, Sally, Johnny. Some of them will come down that dirt road, sit on the porch, have some tea, have some lemonade. She had a porch. She stayed in touch with people because she stayed on the porch. 
we have a patio where we go to the back of the house. I've got a patio too. I like the patio. But the church has been on the patio too long. Shut out the world. We just have our sanctified celebration. We have our party, which is good, as long as we don't neglect the porch. God wants to take us beyond the patio, these walls, out into the world, the porch, where we can communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, you don't have a job. You have a ministry. So, well, I won't, I'm an astronomer. You're not an astronomer. That's not your job. That's your ministry. So that you can tell people about Jesus, who's the bright and morning star and the sun of righteousness that rises with healing in his wing. You say, I'm a botanist. You're not a botanist. It's not your job. That's your ministry. God has given you an audience to tell people about Jesus, the little of the valley, and the bride, and Jesus Christ, who is the rose of Sharon. Well, I'm a medical doctor. No, yeah, that's, that's not your job. That's your ministry. Because he can take care of you without a job. He feeds the sparrow. They don't punch a clock. But you are there to tell people about Jesus, who's the great physician. My mama used to say it. He's got more medicine in the hem of his garment than all the drugstores in town. That God has given you, whatever you call your job, you're an undercover agent for Christ. They don't know it because you'll reach people that brother won't reach and I won't reach. And God sends us into different locales in order to share the gospel. Now, Paul comes to Athens. Right? Athens is no longer the Athens it was 500 years prior when people like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle were there, the great philosophers. No, it's only been reduced to about 5,000 people, but it is still a prominent city. And there Paul steps on the scene. He's been waiting for Silas and Timothy, but they haven't showed up yet. And he knows there's a call on his life and he has to go even though they have not arrived. And you and I have a call on our lives. Everyone here is a minister. Not a preacher. All of us have different gifts. But everyone is a minister. A servant. And you have your own ministry. And it is significant because there's no hierarchy when it comes to ministry. I think one of the most neglected ministries in the church is the ministry to children and to infants. You're doing more than wiping noses and giving oatmeal cookies and milk. Oh, no. You are shaping the minds of children. There's a Billy Graham there. There's an Annie Armstrong there. There's a Mother Teresa there. There's a Marlowe King Jr. there. There's Rosa Parks there. You never know. And Jesus says... It'd be better for you not to be born than for you to offend one of my little children. Because if you did that, you would have a millstone put around your neck. Significant ministry. Your name may not get in the bulletin, but God keeping, giving, keeping a record of that. No, that doesn't earn you salvation. As John Calvin says, good works don't produce salvation, but salvation produces good works. Hmm. So you have the cane helpers. And you just can't help serving the Lord. So Paul goes to Athens. First place he goes is inside the walls of the synagogue. So he always does that. Ten Jewish-headed families to have a synagogue. And he preaches to the Jews. And there are some 
God fear is there. Some Gentiles on the verge of being converted as, a pros as proselytes to Judaism. He preaches inside the walls. But then he leaves the walls and goes out to the agora, the marketplace, where people sell their wares and where people participate in conversation, etc. And he preaches to them. He meets some of the Stoics and Epicureans, these great Athenian philosophers, the Epicureans, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that once you were dead, you, you were done. Their key word was hedonism, that is pleasure. Get all the gusto you could get. Take it to the limit one more time. You only live once. Like that Epicurean philosophy that is illustrated for us, in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 and following, that barn-building fool, eat, drink, be merry. Mm. And God interrupts his soliloquy and says, tonight you, you soul, your soul will be required of you. Mm. Epicureans. But he also meets the Stoics. And the Stoics believed in the resurrection, but it was a disembodied Resurrection, disembodied, a demiurge, a divine spark would come upon those who died. And that's the way they would live, as divine sparks communicating through eternity, which is, of course, not Christian, because we will receive a body likened to his glorious body. Our vile body will be transformed into his glorious body. Stoics' key word was wisdom. As Paul was making fun of these Epicureans uh, who wanted pleasure, what he said in verse 28, in him we live, we move, we have our being. That's our being. That's our joy. That's our pleasure. And he was making fun of these Stoics who take and, took and championed this matter of wisdom when he said in verse 23, I saw an altar, and on the altar was inscribed these words, to the unknown God, saying, you make so much of having wisdom, but you don't even know this God. Let me introduce him to you. I'll tell you who this unknown God is. You don't know him, but I know him. Paul was kind of stoical, if you will, the same way until Christ met him. No, he didn't meet Christ, and you don't meet Christ, and I don't meet Christ. Christ meets us. I found the Lord. The Lord was never lost. The Lord found me. He pursued me. And so Paul begins to preach. They talk about him. They laugh at him. They call him a plagiarist. You don't have any original thought at all. You're like a seed picker, like a bird flitting around trying to get food in its mouth. No. But what they liked was he said something that was unique. We call it sui generis. One of a kind. He talked about deity, God, dying and yet being raised from the dead. They hadn't heard that before. Deity doesn't die. But Paul is saying deity, Jesus, died. Verse 18, resurrection. Verse 31, resurrection. Verse 32, resurrection. They like that. 
They wanted to hear more of it. Why? Because in verse 21, the only thing they talked about every day was something new, some novel thing, some thing that had gadgetry to it. Hmm. And so since he talked about the resurrection of the dead, they invited him up to Mars Hill, the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a place in Greek, the Hill of Ares, in Latin, the Hill of Mars. 60 to 70 of the great thinkers would gather together, just like Wall Street. Wall Street is a place, 23 Wall Street, New York, New York. But it's also an organization. It's a stock exchange company. And the Areopagus, Mars Hill, was a place, but it was a place where the greatest of thinkers in that area met. They were the CNN of the time. They dealt with civil matters, civic matters, domestic matters. They dealt with criminal matters. They were the Fox News. They were the MSNBC. Ah, that's what they were. And Paul stands and he speaks. Thank you for this invitation. I noticed that as I came into your city that you had in the Parthenon a myriad of gods. Yonder is Hermes, the god of commerce. Yonder is Hades, the god of the underworld. Yonder is Apollo, the god of the sun. And yonder is Nike, the god of victory. Yonder is Eros, the god of love. And yonder is Aphrodite, the god of beauty. And yonder is Zeus, the chief of the gods. I see all of those. And I see that you're very superstitious. But I want to talk to you about the God that you don't know that I know. Let me tell you about this God. Verse 24. He is a God who made everything. Verse 25. Though he made everything, he needs nothing from anything or anyone he made. That punctures our pride. God is not needful of anything from me. Ah, God doesn't need me. Can you hear that? God doesn't need me. And I go places where people don't, oh, they don't like that because they think that somehow they are inexpendable and they are indispensable. But God doesn't need us. He just wants us. He wants to use us. Therefore, since he doesn't need me, but wants to use me, I should be a part of a church that doesn't have to beg me or draft me to do anything. I should be beating on pastor's door saying, I have the gift of evangelism. I have the gift of finance. I have the gift of this, this, this. Can I serve? And when I come to church, I ought to come not as a spectator, but as a participator. I would have come saying, I'm just glad to be in the service one more time. He didn't have to let me live. I'm glad to be in the service one more time. I didn't come to church today in order for things to happen. I came to church because things have already happened. This is what he did on Monday. This is what he did on Tuesday. This is what, I've been counting my blessing. I didn't come here to get full. I came here because I'm already full and I'm running over. I can't help it. I don't want to be a spectator. I want to participate. Why? Because all my life, he has been faithful. All my life, he has been so, so good. Ah, I'm running over. 
and therefore I got the Kate helpings. In verse 26, out of one blood, God has made all people, red, black, brown, yellow, and white. One blood. You and I are related twice by one creation. Twice. Redemption. By the blood of Jesus Christ, we are related. Verse number 27. That God desires for us to seek him and he's not far from us. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Mm. And I'm already a half a minute over. Give me one and a half minutes and I'm going to stop. I just have to stop. Verse 27. Verse number 27. Paul is saying this to us. And 28 particularly. That God is the essence of the one that we need. In him we live, we move, and we have our being. And then he quotes one of their philosophers to show that he is culturally in tune with their own writings. Verse 27. God can't be fashioned by silver or gold or stone. You don't make God. God made me in his own image and after his own likeness. And I must not try to make God after my own image and after my own likeness. No, God doesn't come down to be made. God takes and makes us to bring us up to him. In verse 29 and 30. 29, that God wants everyone to repent. At one time, he winked at ignorance. Now that Jesus, the very wisdom of God, has come, he desires that all would repent. And verse number 30, 31, he has appointed that the man, his son, would come and judge the world. What is amazing about this is Jesus, the judge, is judged by God for our sins so that we don't have to be judged for our sins. He took our sins. He became the curse so that we stand free of the curse. They insulted him. They ridiculed him. A deity could die. And sure he did die. He died, but he didn't stay dead. Everything he ever received in life while he was here for 33 years, he borrowed. He was born in a borrowed stable. He preached from borrowed boats. When he came to his death, he would have the Lord's Supper in a borrowed upper room. He rode on a borrowed donkey. He died on a borrowed cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. But anything you borrow, if you're honest, you pay back. He borrowed the tomb on Friday, but he gave it back on Sunday morning. When he rose with all power in his hand, and because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because we know he holds the future, then life is worth living because he lives. After 56 years, I've learned I can't finish a sermon. I just stop. God bless you. 